This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Monday, October the 16th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. On the show today, the federal NDP convention took place this past weekend in Hamilton, Ontario. Michelle McQuig will share some takeaways. It's National Disability Employment Month. Denis Boudreau will discuss inclusive hiring practices. And is the Apple iPhone 15 Pro worth the hype? Sean Priest of Double Tap will give you his review. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv. But the show begins with the top story of the day. Canadian workers at General Motors have reached a new three-year collective agreement. 80.5% of workers voted to ratify the deal. The newly bargained agreement covers more than 4,300 workers at the Oshawa Assembly Plant, St. Catherine's Powertrain Plant, and Woodstock's Parts Distribution Center. The contract includes base hourly wage increases of nearly 20% for production and 25% for skilled trades, a faster timeline for workers to reach the top wage tier, improvements to pensions, and two new paid holidays. There you go, paid vacay. That's always music to my ears. What's not music to my ears? There's still political gridlock in the United States. Jennifer King has the latest. Ohio Republican Jim Jordan will need the support from nearly every House Republican to make his candidacy for House Speaker a reality. Before lawmakers adjourned Friday, Jordan fell 55 votes short in a private meeting of the House GOP conference. If he overcomes resistance within his own party and rises to the speakership, it will help cement the far right's takeover of the Republican Party. Jordan's a favorite of former President Trump, played an active role in the bid to stop the certification of the 2020 presidential election, and refused a congressional subpoena about the January 6th attack. The founding chairman of the House Freedom Caucus and the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Jordan has defended his bare-knuckled approach as rooted in principle, but his reputation could present a challenge to moderate voters as Republicans work to keep or build their House majority in next year's elections. Jennifer King, Washington. And coming back to Canada, Canadian family doctors have new guidelines related to alcohol abuse. Don Kelly explains. The guideline in the Canadian Medical Association Journal warns doctors against prescribing SSRI antidepressants and other medications such as antipsychotics without first ruling out alcohol use disorder. The authors say those drugs can induce cravings for alcohol. The guideline offers 15 recommendations on early detection of excessive alcohol use, diagnosis and treatment, including asking patients how often they've had more than four drinks on one occasion if they're female or five if they're male. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press. And over to the science and astronomy file. Something neat happened in the skies out into space over the weekend. Dave Packer has more. Crowds cheering Saturday at the International Balloon Fiesta in Albuquerque, New Mexico, experiencing what's called an annular solar eclipse. The moon covering the sun's center with its outer band still visible behind the moon 
Called a ring of fire because that's what it looks like. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says it was a big day for NASA scientists because eclipses present unique opportunities to study the sun. Visible from the Oregon coast to Brazil, although clouds obscured the view for many in the western U.S. Dave Packer, ABC News. And there's a Canadian side to the story. Calvin Schmidt is an employee at Friends of the Dominion Astrophysical Observatory, rolls right off the tongue, in Saanich, B.C. He talks about his experience with a crowd of about 100 people on Saturday. So it was completely foggy. It's totally clouded over. However, uh, occasionally uh, the fog would be just thin enough uh, that the optical depth would be just low enough that we could see it without using glasses for a moment or two and then it would disappear and then we'd be able to see it again uh so it's really exciting people would cheer when it would suddenly appear A total solar eclipse will crisscross North America in the opposite direction next April. It will begin in Mexico, go through Texas to New England, before ending in eastern Canada. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Friday's results. Uh, all about Friday the 13th. It was Friday the 13th. So you were asked, are you superstitious about Friday the 13th? 42% of you said yes, and 59% of you said no. I'm assuming that's a typo. I'm guessing it was 58% of you that said no, or 41% of you that said yes, or we've broken the laws of astrophysics. 41% of you said yes, and 59% of you said no. Over to Facebook, at Accessible Media Inc., Tony writes in, no, started dating my wife on Friday the 13th, almost 15 years ago, smiling emoji. Over on Twitter, at Accessible Media, Sailor Rose tweets in, very, it's Like, I'm always plagued with bad luck, like I've been cursed, even. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. In about an hour and 45 minutes, Ryan Van Prate will stop by, inclusive sport advocate, to talk about exercise clothing as the seasons change. So the daily poll is this. Do you invest in specialized exercise clothing and accessories? Yes or no? Of course, uh, the Toronto Marathon took place yesterday and there was all kinds of neat gear being shown off when it came to uh, doing your personal best crossing those lines. Alex Smythe, you nor I ran that marathon. You nor I are elite athletes, but I'll tell you, Alex, if there's one thing I'm going to spend money on, if I'm going to be exercising, it is a decent pair of running shoes. Oh, yeah. Uh, shoes are are very important. And I, I think there's to have a baseline for, you know, every type or every body part that you're using, whether it's like shorts or, or long pants that are going to have some sort of breathability or movability when you're working out. Same thing with like a top, whether it wicks moisture or it's breathable or it's or it's just like comfortable to really maneuver around. I think it's important. So I I'm definitely a yes. Now, do I spend a ton of money on a workout and, and specialized exercise equipment? No. But I will still put money in. I got a specific pair of running shoes for when I'm working out that are going to be light and and comfortable and can move with me and I I can be active in them. 
I got good shorts and and tops as well, just that are gonna kind of pull the moisture away. You know, do the the wicking that you need to do, and it, it's it's breathable and they move around. They're comfortable. I think that's all very key when you are working out because you're basically putting a strain on yourself and your body. You want to be comfortable in what you're wearing. So I, I made sure to invest in it. Just I don't go overboard. I'm not spending hundreds of dollars on, on things like that. But okay. it's just, you know, it's just basic stuff. Okay, so you and I are on the same page when it comes to shoes. We are not on the same page when it comes to shorts or T-shirts. If you're just like going on the elliptical for a couple minutes, a couple times a week, who cares? Like, you're not going to get, like, nipple rashes if uh, you're just wearing a basic old T-shirt. An old T-shirt that's on the verge of going into the garbage gets a couple months as part of the gym cycle and then finally ends its life going into the garbage. It can't even be given to the clothing donation at that point because it's got my Dave Stink all over it. it. It's got to be burned. Yeah, it's but gotta be it's, it's basically got to be incinerated at that point. <laughs> but no, at a certain to a certain degree... I don't understand why you would necessarily spend that money if you are like anything less than a intermediate exerciser. Listen, sometimes uh, the nice uh, big brand wicking shirts go on sale and maybe you're gonna pick that up for a couple bucks, but I'm never deliberately going out of my way to buy something that's like super specialized. But again, running shoes, like that really matters because you will mess up your entire body if you're not wearing proper running, uh, proper footwear when you're doing exercise. But even then, I'm not going to go drop 500, 600 bucks. I'm not running marathons. If I ran the Toronto Marathon yesterday, and I mean, that would have been a sight for everybody to see. I would have made it one kilometer before I was getting dirty water hot dogs on the side of the street. But if I'd been running a marathon, okay, now I'm going to drop some money and get a properly fitted pair of shoes because I'm trying to run 42 kilometers. But again, this idea of sort of I'm popping on the elliptical for 20 minutes and like maybe throwing some weights around a little bit. I mean, come on, like, like money doesn't grow on trees trees and this is not a place to invest your money okay but dave here is a uh a question i have for you you know you and i both like to lift some some heavy weights from time to time oh yeah Clang do you invest in the straps or the gloves for weightlifting? because i do i have a pair not not an expensive pair mind you i just got them off uh online and they were relatively cheap but i find they're very important to keep my hands from callousing cracking chafing getting blisters, all sorts of things. It's a small investment, but it pays off very much so, I find. Yeah, so I got so deep into the weightlifting game so early that I've already destroyed my hands with the calluses, like, uh, <laughs> especially at the at the bases of my fingers on the inside. Like, those calluses are thick at this point, and even including on my thumbs. I think if I had had a little more sense when I was 18 years old and I started lifting, I would have gotten gloves, Alex. But uh, now because the damage is done and the calluses are built, who needs them? My skin, my skin is my gloves. Yeah, but the calluses do go away in time. It was like with me playing guitar. Yeah, I had them for a long time, but you know, you, you don't pick it up for a little bit, and uh, the, they get nice and soft again. So I, I, I try to protect my my hands every now and then too when I'm when I'm doing the kettlebells or the or the dumbbells or what have you, because you know that's the thing. It's like you, if it's fine if you're doing lighter weights, but as soon as you start getting into you know. 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds for dumbbells or kettlebells or even more when you're doing the, the uh, uh, you know, the bars and stuff like that. It, it comes in handy, I find. Oh, yeah, my muscles are twitching just thinking about that sweet, sweet release of the endorphin oh. from clanging and banging around the gym because pain is just weakness leaving the body. Uh, Alex, you mentioned the guitar calluses. Um, yeah. 
Maybe late at night on Saturday, I made an impulse buy uh, on the weekend. I may, okay. have, I may have bought an electric guitar that was on sale at a major Canadian retailer because it came across my social media at about 12.45 uh, a.m. I guess that would have been Sunday morning, uh, Saturday night. So, um, yeah, maybe I'm there not investing. Go. Maybe I'm not spending my money on, uh, on clothing, on exercise clothing, but <laughs> I definitely bought an electric guitar impulsively, forgetting that I do not have an amp. So now I've got to go buy an amp, too. <laughs> well, you can get a small little pocket amp that's, uh, yeah. that's relatively ah. cheap just to get started. So you yeah. can, as you're learning, ah. people, ah. your neighbors don't need to necessarily hear you uh, uh, learn the, the scales and the chords. And as, as I repick it up. But, you know, it was, uh, I've, I've always wanted a Les Paul guitar. And uh, and Gibson stopped making them a couple of years ago, but their sub-brand Epiphone continued to make mm -hmm. them. And uh, there was an Epiphone Les Paul that was on sale for $240, and it was beautiful and blue, and I bought it because I have I no impulse control. I was going to ask what color, blue. Very nice, very nice. I've always dreamed of the white Les Pauls. Oh. I think those are very classy with the gold pickups and everything. Mm. Yes. Anyway, so hopefully that <laughs> arrives, and hopefully I didn't waste my money on a crappy guitar. Uh, Alex, thank you for this. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. That is Alex Smythe. I know I took a detour there, but the actual question was about the purchasing of exercise clothing. So at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, do you invest in specialized exercise clothing and accessories, yes or no? If social media is not your thing, you can send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or... Pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, the federal NDP wrapped up their convention in Hamilton, Ontario. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will share some takeaways. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The federal NDP wrapped up their convention over the weekend. Hamilton, Ontario played host to the event. Michelle McQuig can offer some insight on the happenings. Michelle is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, I know there's a couple in your mind. What are the big takeaways from the convention? Well, the big one for me is the fact that the NDP is planning to try and put the screws on the Liberal government over pharmacare. Mm. Uh, that was the big takeaway was that this was a, the priority that they really want to make happen. They actually held an emergency resolution on the matter. And uh, if you remember the confidence and supply agreement that they currently have with the Liberals is urging the Liberals, not urging, but is commits the Liberals to putting forward some pharmacare legislation this year specifically. Uh, this emergency resolution is really upping the ante on that. And they're saying that if the Liberals fail to do so, they can withdraw their support in the confidence and supply agreement and start treating each vote on a case-by-case -case basis, 
which of course is exactly why the government wants to avoid in the first place and why that agreement is in place. So that could be a pretty major development on the political scene yeah, if the, that were to come to pass. The, there's no doubt about that because the confidence in supply was supposed to last until about 2025. So if you're talking That's about right. 2024 turning into another year of utter uh, election speculation, that absolutely changes the way in which uh, Parliament will be operating. But also considering there are some public inquiries that are in the mix right now, like, like there's a lot of business going on in Parliament. So if something happened to slow down that business, I'm thinking about a national disability benefit for example uh that oh, could that just pick something totally at random yes yeah that, that <laughs> like that could really put some speed bumps at at a process because if because the, the the same thing happened in 2021 if they go to an election all that government business gets wiped off the table and you're back to square one exactly right so yeah the, the government is going to definitely be feeling pressure now i do, I, I, do, I can't I don't have any intel, any sources or anything on whether or not PharmaCare was part of their plan from the outset. Certainly, it's been talked about for some time, but if that was not high up on the priority list heading into the new parliamentary session that gets underway this week, then uh, then it's probably going to be moving up the list because yeah. this is, they, they really, especially given their polling numbers, right? We've seen a lot of evidence recently that the wind is not at the Liberals' backs at the moment in terms of polling and public support. So it's definitely in their best interest to try and maintain that agreement if they can. It's also not really at the NDP's back either, based on that polling. The wind is at the back of no. one Canadian political party right now. So, yes, so, so, so I wonder how much appetite any of them have uh, for an actual election. Uh, Michelle, I did note that there was a, a vote here about the party's own confidence in their leader, Jagmeet Singh. He yeah, did, that was he, the other one that jumped out at me. Yeah, sure. yeah. So, so what jumped out to you there. I, I can give the numbers, by the way, if you don't have them at your fingertips. I think I do, but please correct me. Uh, my recollection is that during the last leadership review of Jagmeet Singh's leadership, that was in 2021, I think he had about 87% of, of confidence from the party, mm -hmm. which is which is very strong. Uh, not as high as we've seen elsewhere, but quite strong. Um, he still enjoys well above majority leadership, but it has gone to a decline. I think we're down to 81%. That's right. This That's right. That okay. was that was the final vote. Uh, so again, not a, not, a, not a huge decline, but definitely a decline. A slide, for sure. Yep. Um, but, you know, as we've talked about this before. We've seen people receive confidence votes of 50-something 50, 50 percent, 60-something percent. Uh, one of those even forced Jason Kenney to step down, if you recall, as the mm -hmm. Premier of Alberta. So 81% uh, is still going to be considered a pretty strong mandate and i don't think we're going to hear a lot of leadership i think the uh, the wind are, is still in his sails whether or not it's uh, blowing briskly the wind uh, continues to yes. be uh, support <laughs> for jagmeet singh inside the party michelle let's turn to something different and this is starting to pop up a little bit across uh, news sources i think driven a lot by uh, your colleagues and some work that you're doing tomorrow mm. tomorrow marks the five-year anniversary of recreational cannabis legalization in canada and there are some different angles being explored five years on it seems that there your are. colleagues now michelle i don't know if this is formal or informal but it seems that your colleagues at cp are doing a series over the course of the last couple of days what are the areas of focus so it is formal and i need to pause and dave humor me here please and just give a shout out to the the brains behind this series is tara deschamps she has been our business uh, reporter on on the cannabis industry since legalization and even a little bit before and the institutional knowledge she brings to this file is really coming out in this four-part series that we've been running um and it it's really in-depth it's a fantastic series there's so many nuances because the industry in short 
is in chaos. Legalization has been an extremely mixed story. Um, many would argue more failures than successes. Uh, that said, there are other elements to explore. So Tara has taken a look at a few different aspects. Uh, today, for instance, the story is looking at all the regulation, all the regulatory issues that have come up because that's a very complex issue. Um, the ways that those things have had to change over the five-year legalization point. Uh, she had a really interesting look at the retail landscape yesterday with mm -hmm. great stories, mm -hmm. very, very colorful quotes. Um, and it, she, she has a big, she had a big overview piece kind of setting up the whole series. Um, it, it's a really great comprehensive look at things because the, the, the situation is so nuanced and so different by jurisdiction that there was no way a, a single wrap-up piece would have been enough. It would have turned into a total novel. So yeah, uh, this is how she opted to take a look at, to do a bit of a retrospective on how things have gone. It's It's been really interesting over the course of the last five years because a lot of people rushed into the space. There were some companies that were already uh, producers that were already established because of the medicinal legalization that had occurred for you know a decade or so previously. But there were a lot of producers who rushed into the space. They ran into the regulatory framework and then they also yeah. ran into the distribution framework. Oh gosh, we can produce this stuff, but where's it going to go how do we market it how does any of this stuff happen and then you're right there's the retail conversation a lot of people rushed into that space hey you know what people are going to want to buy a bunch of cannabis but you know what provinces yeah. are going to do they're going to make it very difficult for us to figure out what exactly our retail framework is and then you, like you said michelle there's the regulatory and consumer side there are cons like there are people on the consumer side who are saying this is okay this is fine but we would like less regulation on our products because the black market is still a place where people people can go in quebec for example michelle people can't buy edibles like like in quebec you still, cannot eh? buy edibles you have to wow. and you're not supposed to cross the border into ontario to do it but people are making trips to kingston or cornwall or uh, sure. from gatineau to ottawa to go get edibles because quebec is not allowing it so there remains and there's, sort of, and there's the mail there's the mail order black market too right and there is so the, many ways around that one yeah so 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 what's happened here is there's there's still like kind of this jurisdictional mess going on and there's a lot of companies uh, like for example um uh the, the big company in a uh, tweed ontario uh whose name is uh eluding me canopy no, uh, canopy canopy growth core under yep. the brand tweed uh, based in smith falls who was a leader in the space and their stock now trades at like two dollars it was up to like 120 $20 during yeah. the pandemic. So like there's been a lot of instability. Crazy. And I'm glad you mentioned those numbers because that's really one of the things that have jumped out at me as I was as I've been reading Tara's work is yeah, Canopy and another one of its rivals, Tilray, one of those companies opened a trading at 195 bucks a share. And you're right. Now some of them are even below a dollar, uh, according to Tara. Uh, another crazy one is the, the price decrease. The fact that the black market is still thriving is, of course, a huge concern for the legal market, and it has led to a massive collapse in prices. Yeah. I was reading that um, dried flour that would have sold for a bit of over eleven seventy five an ounce in twenty nineteen is now going for like three four bucks an ounce. Uh, Graham, so, Graham, I don't know, I don't, Graham, I don't, I don't, I don't know what yeah, stores no, no, up no, for no, those yeah, deals. That's, that's a real yeah. <laughs> Black Friday comes really early in the store. Anyway, <laughs> yes, you're right, Graham. My, my apologies. Um, but yeah, like the the the, in a, the 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 profit margins are gone. The the 
the legal businesses have no way to make, make any money. Having to compete on price is, is impossible at the moment. And mm-hmm. uh, that's another concern that Tara explores. So, so many issues that she gets into, but if you have any kind of interest in the state of Canada's cannabis legalization efforts and, and, and the state of the industry and the market right now, it's definitely worth a read. Yeah, really, really interesting stuff. Tomorrow, Mark, in the five-year anniversary. It's amazing. That's right, uh, if you can believe it. Uh, Speaking of uh, the sands of time continuing to uh, fall, uh, Michelle, United United States Best Buy locations, you know, the big electronics store, are going to stop selling Blu-rays and DVDs starting next year. Michelle, I don't really have any news. Wait, they were still selling those? That's a a fair point. That's a fair observation. (laughs) I don't really have an exercise in journalism question for you, just simply put, stories like this make me feel old. I still remember when DVDs were like the new hip thing. I was working oh, yeah. at a, I was working at a video store when VHS was still king. I feel old. How does a story like this make you feel? Oh, positively ancient. I'm with you. I remember when DVDs were all the rage, and and I remember when there was a format war between Blu-ray and and the competitor. I don't remember any H- longer. H- but like... HD DVD. Oh my God! Thank you. It, and, so this was an open question at one point as to which one of these formats would take over. And I remember that. So yes, all these things made me feel about as old as the text I recently got from my brother that said, Will Smith is now older than Uncle Phil. You're welcome. Oh, come on. Now right. we're making Fresh Prince of Bel-Air Sands of Times jokes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, all these things concerned <sighs> people geriatric yes. well all, all i know is my collection of dvds and blu-rays will continue to gather uh, dust on my shelf because you never know when you need a physical copy of the usual suspects to watch because some streamer uh took it off their service michelle <laughs> michelle thank you for this have a great day you too dave take care that's michelle mcquig weekend news editor at the canadian press coming up after the break it's national disability employment month denis boudreau will discuss inclusive hiring practices this is now with dave brown on ami tv Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's National Disability Employment Awareness Month. People with disabilities are significantly underrepresented in the workplace. You know that. The actual number? The employment rate for persons with disabilities is 59.4%, according to Stats Canada. That's well below the national average. Creating a more inclusive workforce starts right from the hiring process. Denis Boudreau is putting together a blog series on inclusive leadership. Denis is the founder of Inclusive Communication. Hey, good morning, Denis. Nice to chat with you once again. Good morning. Happy to be here. So, Denis, starting very broadly, what takeaways could be made about a company based on how inclusive their hiring process is? Well, either it breaks or, or makes it. Uh, it certainly speaks quite a bit to their commitment to diversity. I mean, so that would be that would be one obvious thing uh, that that comes to mind. Um, how you perceive that brand also as someone who is trying to apply for a position uh, certainly would also uh, be be a significant takeaway from from your experience trying to uh, to to secure a position with that company. Um, 
from from the position of of people working there uh recognition of ta- like very diversified talents um n- not everyone fitting the same mold kind of thing is also a very interesting uh, aspect um a good takeaway might also be uh, related to say you know risk mitigation from a legal standpoint also uh bad reputational uh you know reputational damage or bad press um and then and then i would say also from the perspective of those who already work there again a bit of a commitment um increase and and probably also uh some some engagement and and productivity gains because you feel you feel like you belong you feel like you want to be part of something very positive in that way so that influences people in in you know, generally so i would say all those things are, are pretty good takeaways uh from having a a more inclusive hiring process. Vinny, there's a real A to Z when it comes to what the hiring process includes. If you start right from that letter A, step A in the process, that's the job ad. What mistakes are companies making with simply the jobs they're posting? I feel like I want to mention like do a reference with to lord of the rings right now slightly different but i mean if you have like one path to sort them all it's not gonna work really so um you know inaccessible formats um inaccessible job ads uh where where you are providing information that in in formats that are not accessible for instance you might have your entire uh, job ad as a PDF. If the PDF is not accessible to people, it sends a pretty clear message that you didn't think about something like that. Um, if you um, if you're not accounting for any kind of accommodation that people might need, in terms of you know the way that they might consume that information, the way that they might even understand the information that is provided to them in that job ad are all ways in which in which that can that can break. Um, if the language that you're using is uh, is hard to understand, if it's too vague or if it's too uh, complex, if it's even too vague about inclusion, for instance, it's not really saying much about that aspect, um, that might send a couple of red flags also. Mm. Um, if the process itself is super complex and super complicated, also it's going to discourage people from even applying. Um, yeah, things like that are, are certainly some of the the issues or the the mistakes that people make uh, when they're not accounting for uh, diversity and, and inclusion in their in their hiring process. Yeah, when I think about complexity, I think about the click through process, right? When it's when mm-hmm. it says, "Okay, go here to apply," so then you click on that link, and then it takes you to another generalized page, and it's, "Oh, what job number posting are you looking for?" And then you punch that in, and then it takes you to another click through page, and all of a sudden you've had to click through six, seven, eight websites. And if you're using a screen reader, I mean, come on, at what point are you going to give up on that? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's it, it, it makes everything very complicated for a lot of people. And again, you know, it, it sort of speaks pretty clearly to if trying to secure a job in that organization is that difficult, how difficult is it going to be once I work there if I ever get the job? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that would feel pretty disheartening to begin with as well. So 
yeah, totally, totally agree with you. Denny, diving a little deeper into the job posting itself, uh, one of the sections that always strikes me as interesting is the job requirements section, uh, especially when you get these uh, entry-level positions that need uh, 10 years of experience. Uh, it kind of, that one always kind of baffles me a little bit. But in this industry, in the media broadcast industry, uh, there's the one that says uh, driver's license. You know, you've always got to have a driver's license, even if you're working in a city like Toronto or Montreal. It doesn't matter if there's a metro. It doesn't matter if there's public transit. No, 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 no. You must have a driver's license. So how could a company maybe handle the job requirements section with a little more nuance or a softer touch? So, you know, again, it, it goes back to being aware of what you're asking and the kind of pressure that it puts on the candidates uh, that could apply. You know, you're, you're talking about that, that driver's license. Um, it's a great example. Another great example would be, you know, asking for a certain degree when the job doesn't really require it. Um, I mean, we, I, I, I kind of get it. I mean, people want to get the absolute best candidates that they can for the positions, but, you know, they, some, they, they sometimes, they often ask for way more than what is really required for the job, which is also then discouraging for some people. And, and you don't get, you don't get as much variety in terms of, of who applies. And it tends to always lead to having candidates that sort of fit that same mold again. So you're not like you're working against the very idea of a diverse workforce, diverse workforce as a result of that. Uh, you know, if you instead of, of you know asking for these unreasonable things or things that are maybe not completely important to the position, if you you know you prioritize the essential skills, I mean, what are the things that you really need to be able to do? I mean, that is important, obviously, and and that should be a factor upon which you determine whether someone should get the job or not. Mm. Um, again, using inclusive language as you're doing this, also, I mean, how are you presenting this information? Are you presenting in a way that you know feels like inclusion is part of those core values? If you know, if if inclusion is a core value, obviously. Um, being clear about flexibility also through this. Not everyone works in the exact same, um, you know, format, so to speak. Um, speaking to the, the the flexibility of maybe working from home or having the ability to work with your own equipment, for instance, like these different things are certainly going to make a difference in people's ability to do that. And also be clear about accommodations. I mean, if you if you again through the entire job ad, there's nothing that speaks to any kind of disposition towards having that flexibility, then a lot of people would just say, this is not for me mm. and, and move on to something else. And then you as an organization might be losing a you know, fantastic talent that just won't come to you because you closed the door in their faces right before they could even start. Denise, so many times in the job seeking process, there's a lot of onus put on the job seeker rather than the company itself. But when it comes to inclusion, what can companies do about being proactive with their outreach? You mean through the uh, before? You, oh, okay. I see what you mean. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of in terms of of recruiting. Um, you know, you want to, you probably want to explore other areas. Um, if, if all you do is always go and search for candidates in the same places, you will find the same kind of candidates. It's kind of like I, I, something I wrote in that blog post. Um, like if you, if you always fish in the same pond, 
you can't really expect to find new fish at some point. So you're always going to get the same kind of fish, right? So one of the things that I was mentioning in that post, among other things, is you know get involved with organizations out there that help people with disabilities find jobs, and and you know get involved with those organizations, contribute to what they're doing, get in touch with them, participate to their events, for instance, have a kiosk over there, like a booth or something, and then go and and meet them where they are. You are going to attract a lot more of those talents if you're even showing up over there. I mean, it clearly means that you you care. So those are all uh, you know ways that in which you can you can certainly uh, certainly help with with you know finding new new uh, new talents, new mm -hmm. places to to find those talents. And okay, we've gotten through the outreach side. We've gotten through the job posting side. Let's say the company has figured out a way to make that process more inclusive. They've got a more diverse group of people applying for the jobs, and now they're entering the interview period to secure the job. What can an organization do during that interview period to continue to demonstrate the commitment to inclusion? Well, again, I think the very first one is you know being clear about the fact that accommodations are possible, that you just need to mention what it is that you need in terms of accommodation to, to have a successful interview uh, with them or go through any like, successful interview process. Um, having flexibility in the way that these interviews can be conducted also. Not everyone could easily, you know, drive over to the location. So can you offer that virtually or remotely, for instance? Can you uh, can you make sure, I mean, I mean not so much what you, what you can make sure, but really, are you, if you're going to claim that you are a very inclusive and diverse organization that values inclusivity in that sense, you could also make sure that, you know, in the interview process, not everyone is male and old and white, for instance. Like you could have variety there, also diversity, so that um, people can recognize themselves a little bit easier. And again, it sort of helps with feeling like you might belong in, in a place like that. Um, being very mindful and, and, and clear about the language that you use, again, I mean, it's, it's true at every single step of the process, obviously, but maybe particularly so once you are sitting in front of the interviewer to hear language that reinforces that this is a good place for you and not a place where you might be gaslit or, or you know just just prejudiced against as you may have been in the past in other places that didn't really care about accessibility or or inclusion for instance mm -hmm. so some of, some of are those are the things that come to mind in order to make the person feel you know like this is a good place for them. Denis, uh, we are over time. We're out of time. Got to get out of here. Thank you for your time this morning. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. That is Denis Boudreau, the founder of Inclusive Communication. In 60 seconds, there was some rumbling and shaking around Vancouver Island. Alex Smythe will have it in the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo. Oh, it's not Karen Rebo. It's Rob Westgate this morning with your Morning Business Minutes. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Bay Street dipped lower Friday, being pulled south by sagging performances from the utilities, technology, and battery metals sectors. Toronto's S&P TSX losing 37 points to 19,463. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 39 points to settle at 33,670, while the Nasdaq fell 167 points down to 13,407. Asian markets are starting the week on a down note, with Japan's Nikkei plummeting 657 points to 31,659. Credit Canada says when it comes to affordable mortgages, you'd be best to shop around. The CEO for oil sands giant Suncor is clarifying his company is still committed to decarbonizing, and Canada's pot industry is hoping a government review will lessen the turmoil the sector is facing. As for the loonie, it's trading at 73.33 cents US. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Thank you very much, Rob. Let's find out what's happening in the world of weather with Alex Smythe. Alex, things got a little shaky around Vancouver Island. Yeah, Dave. So uh, we're going to be focusing in on an earthquake that was recorded off the coast of Vancouver Island last night. Uh, a 4.9 magnitude earthquake was recorded about a, uh, just under 200 kilometers away from Port Hardy. And Port Hardy, for those who are unaware, is located on the northwestern side of Vancouver Island, right to the northern tip. And so Earthquakes Canada said that there was no tsunami risks or, or any other concerns stemming from this quake, which is positive news. The one thing is this quake follows a series of over 30 tremors that took place in September through a span of three or four days. And it was right in that same area. And part of why that area is so volatile is because there's three different tectonic plates that are all interacting with each other in that area. So you have the Pacific plate, you have the Juan de Fuca Strait uh, uh, plate, and you have the North American plate. And they all shift and rub and make contact with each other. And that's what's causing these earthquakes and tremors. So while there is no news that there is uh, an, or any concerns from the earthquake, it's never really all that positive or it's a little bit concerning when you, you do have news of an earthquake, regardless of uh, the low after effects from it. It's just a, a bit concerning to have it happen so frequently in that area. That's why they have earthquake drills at Vancouver schools and Seattle schools and BC and Washington and Oregon schools because of all that tectonic activity. Coming up after the break, a new documentary on Netflix explores the dirty truth about your food. Amy Amanti has a review of Poisoned. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. This next segment might make your tummy take a turn. There's a new documentary on Netflix that is asking the question, do you know if what you're eating is safe? Here's a clip from the trailer from Poisoned, the dirty truth about your food. In a grocery store. Cut fruit, cut cantaloupe, strawberries, caramel apples, tomatoes, onions, chicken. All these products are likely contaminated. 
It is a very scary situation where you have a perfectly healthy 17-year-old female, and 48 hours later, she's dying. Photo showed chunks of her hair missing. It was an absolute nightmare. It was definitely from E. coli. If I buy chicken at the grocery store, should I assume it's safe for me? Your primary assumption should be that it contains pathogens such as Salmonella and Campylobacter. A chef hones a pair of knives. There are 15 federal agencies that in one form or another are tasked with food safety regulation. Food companies hate regulation. They don't think of it as food. It becomes a commodity. Profit is more important than ethics. Amy Amanti is an entertainment critic hanging out there in Vancouver and has a review of Poisoned. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. Amy, are you uh, hungry yet? <laughs> I'm always hungry. I'm, perpet I'm perpetually <laughs> trying to fill the void of happiness in my life uh, with food. And I make some <laughs> terrible food choices, but I know they're terrible food choices. Why do you make the choice to hit play on Poisoned? You know, I don't think that I knew what Poisoned was when I hit play on it. I thought the title was kind of evocative. Um, I don't, I'm not one of those people that spends a lot of time researching stuff before I hit play or watching trailers necessarily before I hit play. And so sometimes I just go, hey, that's a cool title. I wonder what that's about. And I hit play. So I thought the title was evocative. And, uh, and then when I watched the trailer, I thought, oh man, should I or shouldn't I? Should I or shouldn't I? And I thought, okay. I guess I better learn something. So, but I will say, Dave, because I am the kind of person too that, you know, occasionally puts something in the microwave that comes in a box. Um, and I will say that, you know, as much as we talk about eating healthy, uh, sometimes it's safer to put something in a microwave that comes out of a box. Um, and, you know, it's counterintuitive to everything we've learned about, you know, eating healthy. Right. There's so much chatter online about processed food versus fresh food, but so yeah. much of what was being shown in that trailer was the fresh food at the grocery store, yeah. the whole foods at the grocery store, and not the boxed, processed, uh, right. canned, etc. So, Amy, th there's some history here yeah. that, I, that I imagine you took away. When did Americans change the way they looked at food contamination? You know, this started, um, this actually started with uh, a, a story from the 90s, and you may remember this, when there were some children that died from eating contaminated beef from Jack in the Box. Do you remember this, Dick? I do not remember I, this. You do not remember this, Kate. Well, you and I are about the same age. I remember this. I was in elementary school. We might have been about eight, nine, ten years old. And I remember hearing that some kids had died from, from eating Jack in the Box. And I was terrified because I thought, Oh my gosh, what happens if I eat a fast food burger? And then I was like, phew, we don't have Jack in the Box in Canada. So it won't, it couldn't happen to me because I thought it was, you know, at that age, it was just a Jack in the Box thing. Not, of course, realizing that it was a beef thing, right? Um, and this was because what was happening was that there was um, E. coli found in beef. Uh, that was because of the way that cattle was being raised. And E. coli was essentially coming from uh, the fecal matter that was, uh, you know, being uh, uh, the way that cows were raised on farms and the contamination of, of fecal matter in the farming process that gets into uh, the slaughterhouses and then into the manufacture of ground beef. And like, without getting too grotesque about it, you know, when you get a steak, you know, that's one cow. When you get ground beef, that could be hundreds of cows in your ground beef, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So they couldn't trace that back to one particular animal or one particular farm. And so they had to re, not reinvent, but kind of reinvent how they uh, manufactured beef. 
Uh, and so that process, so now instead of there being, you know, almost 100% possibility of there being E. coli in beef, there's now like a 2% possibility of there being E. coli in your ground beef. So that process is uh, over the, over these years has totally, totally changed. Right. And, you know, when you look at the statistics from that particular class action suit from those deaths, you would see that Jack in the Box was ignoring all of the case studies, which essentially said that you had to cook ground beef to a specific temperature in order to kill E. coli, right? right? And so then they were blaming it like on housewives that were like, well, you know, bad mothers didn't know how to cook beef. And this was like legislated almost that women who were bad housewives because they weren't cooking beef, you know? And so, you know, people were dying in homes because, you know, how dare women not know how to cook beef to like 160 degrees, right? All of these things. And that Jack and Box was specifically ignoring these protocols and all. And it was like, it was documented and people were saying, oh no, we don't need to, we can ignore all of this. Anyways, all after all of that had changed, you would think that it would trickle over into the poultry uh, farming industry, and it has not to this day. And so we are at risk of salmonella contamination for all of the same reasons within poultry. So this is still, and this is because you know chickens are in really small pens, uh, often stacked. You know, think about it, like a hundred deep, hundred wide. And, you know, they have to go to the bathroom and they're going to the bathroom on top of each other. And so how can a chicken remain clean in those environments? Uh, and that can get into the eggs and it can get into the meat of the chicken. And so when it's processed and in the in, in through the manufacturing process, it can be contaminated. So you have to make sure that you cook your chicken properly. Um, and so some of the tips in this uh, a documentary are really great in terms of like how you make sure you cook things, how you make sure you don't contaminate uh, parts of your counter, like using the knife to cook your chicken shouldn't be the same knife you cook to cut your vegetables and uh, yes, you know, all of those correct. things, which, right? And so, um, you know, I, I know some people who don't care about that stuff. Like, hey, this is so funny, Davey. My own grandmother, when she was teaching me to make sausages, when she would come to my house and teach me how to make sausages like they did on the farm years ago, she would taste the ground beef before it was even cooked. She'd just stick her hand in the, in the cold ground beef to taste it for salt and pepper. And I'd be like, ew, you can't oh, do that. Oh, my gosh. Why <laughs> no. not? You know, right? And I'd be like, no, you can't do that, right? So there's a difference. But here, like, here's the thing that I just want to emphasize. So, okay, we know how to cook ground beef. We know how to cook chicken in hopes of killing off this bacteria. But if you have cattle farms, chicken farms that are using the same water at, that's watering the fields of your leafy vegetables. This is how we get the E. coli and the salmonella that has been found on lettuce and spinach. And those things we can't, we don't cook necessarily. Uh, yes, that is what, yeah. That like is what they were talking about, this young woman who died from eating a salad. Okay, Amy. I, honestly, I'm I'm a little lost here because you you just yeah, shot, okay. you just shot a ton of information at me. I know, I know. It's scary stuff. Okay. Well, well, this is why it's really important when we're doing documentaries. Like, what, what is what is the documentary arguing precisely about contamination? Because you just talked about preparation at home yeah. versus like industrial farming. The the yeah. the preview was all set in the grocery store. So, like, yeah. what exactly is Poisoned arguing here? I mean, I think okay, it's a so little bit in the name, but what are they actually arguing? Poisoned is arguing that there are so many different uh, regulatory bodies, uh, more than five, that regulate, uh, regulate or don't regulate, depending on which body it is, how food is uh, grown or manufactured 
or distributed by the time it gets to our grocery stores. So in some cases, there are no regulations, like for example, manufacturing or growing vegetables. Some of those, depending on the vegetable, have no regulations whatsoever. And so it's like the Wild West. And so if you are, for example, in the leafy green uh, manufacturing or growth uh, industry, uh, they're creating their own sort of uh, uh, regulations, which are not government sanctioned. Nobody's controlling these or sanctioning these or um, uh, enforcing these or anything. And they are often using the same water that comes from uh, how they are, how farmers who are raising cattle. So the runoff of that water that is contaminated with fecal matter from cows is being used to water lettuce, spinach, right. kale, okay. those kinds of things. So if you've got five bodies that are governing or not governing these processes, there's a lot of stuff that falls through the cracks. And none of these bodies talk to each other. These bodies include how stuff is um, cooked or processed in a restaurant. And so nobody takes accountability when something goes wrong. Therefore, change doesn't happen very fast. So what, what's your takeaway from, from watching this documentary and learning about perhaps some of those failures of regulation and inspection? And by the way, you don't need to look that far, right? Like yeah. just a couple hours away from you in Calgary, Alberta, there are kids who uh, ended up like suffering serious uh, consequences from an E. coli outbreak because of tainted Absolutely. meat in daycares. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think the takeaway is, is certainly if you are somebody who eats meat, you must, must, must know how to cook it. Um, you know, one of the interesting things, and like I, I eat meat, and this seems like a, a thing that uh, is logical, but I, I had never connected the dots. Like when you cook a steak, the E. coli is on the outside of the meat. So we sear the outside. This is why you can have a steak that's raw on the inside, right? You sear the outside of your meat, and that kills the, the, the bacteria. But if you have ground beef, there's no searing the outside, so it has to be cooked through. So anytime you have meat, you have to know how to cook it properly. Chicken has, can't be seared on the outside, it has to be cooked through, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to know, depending on what kind of meat you're eating, how to cook it properly and what temperature it needs to reach in order to be cooked properly. When we, you know, going through Thanksgiving, if people had to cook a turkey, you know that you have to, you know, poultry has to hit like at least, what, 165 on the, uh, you know, internally. So, you know, maybe you need to have a, a talking thermometer to make sure that you're killing your E. coli. When it comes to our vegetables, you have to know how to clean those properly. When it comes to things in our grocery stores, oftentimes we take for granted that those are already cleaned and we don't like wash our tomatoes. <laughs> they are not, whatever. they are not already cleaned. They are not. Or that like when we buy the bagged lettuce, so they tell you like, don't buy your lettuce pre-chopped. If you're gonna buy lettuce, buy it in the leaf. So you wash your leaves, right? If it's pre-chopped, you don't, you're not gonna wash that necessarily. But the things where there are the most dangerous are things like the, the pre-cut cantaloupes and the pre-cut um, uh, pineapples, right? And I'm guilty of this too, the pre-cut apples, because they're not being washed anywhere and they could be grown with the runoff of water that's been used on farms that have been contaminated by cattle or poultry, and especially cantaloupe because you can't wash the outside of a cantaloupe because of its divots, because of its texture of its skin. skin you actually cannot wash E. coli off of that. So you have to, you know, if you're gonna cut open a cantaloupe and eat a cantaloupe, you have to be able to cut it properly without contaminating the inside. So there's a lot of things to think about. And if you don't know how to properly prep these things, you're you're at risk, right? So, I mean, that's the thing. Same thing with a kiwi. How do you wash a kiwi properly? 
I, I don't know how to wash kiwi All right, properly. And I love kiwi and I love cantaloupe. So the next time I, I, I eat these things, I think to myself, am I washing this properly? Do I know how to wash this properly? Chances are I don't. Uh, Amy, just quickly here, because we're running yeah. we're running out of time. How was the audio description on this one? Because a film like this, I imagine, could get maybe a little bit gross, but the AD is pretty specific and important. Yeah, I mean, this one, uh, there was a lot of um, specific stuff that was spoken about. So the AD, while important, was actually uh, supplementary, and, and, and all of the content really was important from the subject matter in general. So the AD really just filled in the blanks of who was speaking and, and you know, their, um, you know, why it was important to hear what they were talking about. Um, so it didn't necessarily need to, to fill in too many blanks other than uh, to talk about the menu, like the, 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 the visuals of the manufacturing process. And that was really interesting, you know, where your beef is when and, and, and all of those pieces, which is really interesting. So again, could turn some people into vegetarians by uh, understanding how meat goes through. A, a I mean, or or not, because if your vegetables are contaminated too, that's that's not going <laughs> to help. That's not going to help too much either. Uh, we're not. just going to eat nothing but seeds. Amy, thank well, you for this. this. Is, like, comes out of a box, you know. Yeah. You already know. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is <laughs> entertainment critic Amy Amanti in Vancouver, British Columbia. You can find Poisoned: The Dirty Truth About Your Food on Netflix in sixty seconds. Taylor Swift blew up the box office this weekend. Alex Smythe will crunch the numbers in his entertainment report. But first, a NASA spacecraft is headed to a metal-rich asteroid. Ed Donahue explains in Tech Trends. Engine ignition. The spacecraft is called Psyche. And liftoff. Liftoff of Falcon Heavy and Psyche. It's the start of a six-year mission to reach the asteroid called Psyche. Principal investigator Lindy Elkins-Tantum believes it may be the battered remains of an early planet's core. We don't know a lot about our core. What we've learned about it, we learn indirectly because we can't go there. And so Psyche gives us the opportunity to visit a core. Astronomers know from radar and other observations the asteroid is big. To us, it's a speck of light in the night sky. The asteroid is two billion miles away. I'm Ed Donahue. Thank you very much, Ed. Alex Smythe, Taylor Swift had a big weekend at the box office. Yeah, Dave, uh, the Eras concert video, uh, film video, however you want to describe it, its opening weekend garnered $129 million globally. Uh, that's now the highest grossing for any concert film opening of all time. And it's also the sixth highest domestic opening e weekend in the U.S. this year. So needless to say, Dave, uh, the concert films of years past that you and I would have grown up with, it, they've evolved over the year. How, how do you think the evolution and, and what's your, how do you kind of think about the change that has undergone concert films from back in the day where you go and get a DVD or a video from, you know, the Best Buy or something like that, and you're watching after the fact, and now they're doing full wide releases in theaters. I think uh, it's a testament to the improvements of technology. I think uh, it's become much easier to record these things, both in terms of a video quality, probably in 4K, maybe even 8K, as well as capturing the sound at a higher resolution and higher caliber. So the distribution and quality of the experience at the theater might even be better than the in-stadium experience or in-arena experience. Uh, there's a possibility the quality might be even higher uh, based on that, and that is just an evolution 
evolution of technology, which I just don't think was available to musicians and artists uh, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Alex, I'll say this though. I think this debut number at the box office is actually a little bit disappointing. Considering the Taylor Swift mania that's been going on the better part of uh, this last year, and with the Eras Tour, you know, ticket selling for $1,000, the fact that it was only the sixth biggest domestic debut of the year in the U.S. actually strikes me as a little bit disappointing. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I wonder if um, maybe theaters under kind of estimated just how wide of a release they could have uh, given this uh, concert film. I, I'm sure the I'm sure this is going to at least reach a billion dollars. I, I have no doubts that this is going to be one of the highest grossing films of the year, Dave, uh, just based on all that popularity around Taylor Swift. So uh, I, I'm sure that you may think it, it's a low on, uh, for the opening. There's going to be more money coming down the pipeline. Yeah, I don't doubt that. That's Alex Smythe with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. A town in the Northwest Territories is trying to rebuild after wildfires destroyed everything. I'll have that story in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, October the 16th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show is the Apple iPhone 15 Pro worth all the hype. Sean Priest will give you his review. And how can you dress for the fall weather while staying active outdoors? How do you stay warm without making yourself too sweaty? Ryan Van Praet has some tricks and tips. But the hour begins with the regional news update. Beginning in the territories, residents of Enterprise Northwest Territories are charting a path forward after wildfires destroyed their town. Kelly Malone has more. Hello. There's a lot of, everything was melted. There's nothing left. Paul Flamin says he was devastated to return to Enterprise and find his house completely gone. You know, it's about 1,800 degrees to melt copper, like the piping, and literally there's puddles of copper all over my house. The small hamlet of about 100 people is now asking if anything could have been done before the blaze got out of control to avoid this level of destruction. The mayor is also asking for an independent inquiry to investigate just what happened. Kelly Malone, the Canadian Press, Enterprise. I don't mean to be snarky, but fire happened. That's what happened. A fire burned down your town. Let's maybe spend the money rebuilding and not being like, how hot were the flames exactly? Over to British Columbia, unionized workers who service elevators across BC have been served with a lockout notice by their employers. 
Mike Funk is a business manager at the International Union of Elevator Constructors, Local 82. He says the union and employers will be at the BC Labor Relations Board today to discuss essential service designations. Funk says places like hospitals and long-term care homes should be exempt from any labor strife. The union local has about 900 members across the province. And over to the Atlantic region, Cape Breton University is experiencing a big increase in student population. John Kennedy has the story. The preliminary figures for 2023-24 to 24 released on the website of the Association of Atlantic Universities indicates that Cape Breton University has 8,517 full-time students enrolled as of October this year, up more than 3,100 compared to a year earlier. The growth dwarfs the increase in other Nova Scotian communities. The statistics released indicated the Cape Breton schools' increases have largely come from international students, which has been the focus of its recruiting efforts in recent years. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. That's your look at the regional news. Let's talk a little bit of sports with Brock Richardson. Chatting about the Major League Baseball playoffs to get started, the Texas Rangers drew first blood in the American League Championship Series. The Rangers knocked down the Houston Astros 2-0. Rangers pitcher Jordan Montgomery tossed a gem. Texas manager Bruce Bochy gave his starter some love. Our guy was really good, Monty. Uh, uh, terrific job he did. Uh, he got in a couple jams there and found a way to get out of it. So I thought it'd be a low-scoring game. Guys played well. Our defense uh, was outstanding tonight. Houston manager Dusty Baker is not sweating one loss. This team's the best I've been around about moving on. You know, there's nothing you can do. And if you're going to lose a game... You know, you're ready to lose it in, in, in the first game versus, you know, in the middle of the series. Brock, Dusty Baker is not wrong about that. It certainly does not kill you to lose game one in a seven-game series. But the Texas Rangers have yet to lose a game in the playoffs. Yes, they uh, remain undefeated at 6-0, and which I think if I had said to you, will the Texas Rangers remain undefeated, you'd tell me I'm not. It's the last team to do this to be undefeated and go undefeated was the Cincinnati Reds in 1976 so I learned last night in my research which is pretty crazy I don't necessarily think they're going to go undefeated but hey it's a stat to throw out there Jordan Montgomery as you alluded pitched really really well uh there's not much you can do when a guy is doing that on the mound and Texas really just took advantage of minimal opportunities that they were given and that's what you got to do in the playoffs I thought this series was going to be a power slugger kind of series. Not so much the case in game one. I wonder how that evolves, though, heading into game two today. Because it does feel like, yes, they sent their both teams sent some aces out there last night with Justin Verlander, like multiple times Cy Young winner <laughs> on the other side of the field. You maybe had the sense that game one was going to be a little nip and tuck, Brock. I feel like the bats are coming out here in game two. And I think if you had said to uh, Houston, listen, you're going to give up two runs and Justin Verlander is going to be on the mound, how are you going to feel about this game? I I would think that, you know, Dusty Baker and, and company would probably say, well, we'll take that. Um, and, I, and I do, I think we're going to see a pretty high scoring game this afternoon. Remember, this afternoon's game is at uh, 4.37 p.m. Nice. Eastern time. So, so do check that out because both the... 
uh, American League and National League game are going today. So that's why. But yeah, I, I think it was a good game. I I gotta say I'm I'm kind of on board with the Texas Rangers here. I I I, I think they're kind of a team that nobody really expected them to be where they are but hey they're making a run for it and i don't think this is going to be an easy out for the texas rangers up and down or for the houston astros up, pardon me. Up, up and down season for the rangers but they uh, put it together late to uh, get into the playoffs and uh, once they're there those uh, bats woke up in a big way brock the nhl season Still only uh, four or five days old at this point. But I think there's some room for some early season overreactions here. I've got two. Brock, is he going to score 240 goals this year? I think he might. Yes, absolutely. Why not? I think I think this is totally possible. I'm obviously being sarcastic, although that was one of the comments uh, in uh, the headlines segment in the intermission with Elliot Friedman and company on Saturday. They said, well, he's on pace to score over 200. And uh, here we go with these, these overreactions. But yeah, I mean, I, I think th this is good. I like seeing my team score goals and, you know, do this. The other sort of, oh, let me, let, let me see what your second overreaction is. And, and uh, well, that, that was my, that was my absurdist overreaction. Just like, <laughs> yeah, good, good for Austin Matthews. The guy's a good hockey player. My sincere <laughs> overreaction is the Edmonton Oilers now sitting at 0-2. Another loss to the Vancouver Canucks on Saturday night. Didn't matter about switching up the goaltender to their uh, tandem 1B backup, whatever you want to call it. Stuart Skinner didn't stop the bleeding either. Brock, Edmonton, there's no way in their minds they thought this season was starting 0-2. No, absolutely not. With the, the the schedule starting the way that it did, I think that they kind of probably expected possibly the reverse of a of a two and zero start. That's what I expected. Yeah, to that's be what I would have expected too. This this team has Stanley Cup aspirations, and they haven't shown it two games in. And and I mean, I understand the rivalry. I understand Vancouver going to get up to play. I, I I understand all that. But Edmonton, come on, man. These are these. This is a rivalry game that you should be doing really well and they have pooped the bed the first two games of the year to me i i think they'll be fine like i think you're right it is a bit of an over overreaction in edmonton as being oh and two but it is a bit of a concern in that you know they they played the way they played both both of these games and and really not looked very good to be honest with you brock thank you for this got to get out of here thank you that is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. Is the Apple iPhone 15 Pro worth the hype? Sean Priest of Double Tap will give you his opinion because he's got one and he's going to review it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Apple iPhone 15 Pro fell from the tree about a month ago. Sean Priest is one of the co-hosts of Double Tap on AMI-audio. He got a hold of an iPhone 15 Pro, and he wants to share some features that he finds useful with you. Hello, Sean. Hello, Dave. First thing can I say, how dare you? What I actually have is the iPhone 15 Pro Max. Whoa! Don't, 
don't don't downgrade me it Whoa. took me a long time to get hold of one of these D did i just like <laughs> knock like a like like a tenth of an inch off your screen size there sean yes. <laughs> exactly never do that <laughs> never do that <laughs> to another man <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so sean what has been your overall experience with the iphone 15 pro max well you know i've got to say i am really enjoying the phone it is it does everything that you'd want a phone to do. I mean, we could get into the tech specs. You know, we've we got the iPhone 15, the iPhone 15 Plus, and then in the Pro family, iPhone 15 Pro and Pro Max. Um, and they've got different processors. One's A16, the Pro is A17. But at the end of the day, all that really doesn't matter. I mean, this is the latest iPhone. And because of that, it is the fastest one. Um, it's very nice. The design is very nice indeed. It's um, uh, this one uses titanium as its metal, and it, you know what? It's just a nice phone, as you would expect. But the real question, I suppose, is: Do you need to upgrade your current iPhone? If you have an iPhone 14, for example, is there enough with the iPhone 15 to make it worthwhile? And that's the real question. And to be honest. That's a very personal question. Okay. I would personally, I, 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 I'm not ducking out of it, I promise you, but I would say <laughs> I don't think so. Um, it, the, the performance gaps between these generations are getting so, so unnoticeable. Mm. Now, te technically wise, yeah, this this Pro range uses a A17 processor with a three nanometer uh, manufacturing process, which means it's more efficient and faster. But the end user, like myself, honestly, couldn't care less. All I care about is, you know, does voiceover work well on it? Does it keep up? Does it feel laggy? Does it feel snappy and responsive? And the answer is yes, of course it does. It feels like butter it's so silky mm. smooth but you would expect that but then going back to an iphone 14 it still feels pretty responsive and snappy as well so um yeah as i said we could get into the tech specs of the new iphone 15 but honestly i don't think it matters it is the best iphone you could buy right now and that's all you need to know right whether or not you should buy it is a completely different question. Yeah, the specs to a certain degree are just gibberish, right? It's like, does it feel yeah, good to right. use this phone? Uh, Sean, as I recall, you used to be more on the Android family. When did you make that switch, or why did you make that switch? I'll tell you exactly why it was, because I got bored. I oh. got bored of the same old design. And the thing with Android is, you know, with different manufacturers, different brands, there's a choice. There's a different design look there. You know, the Samsung uh, S Galaxy range is just absolutely gorgeous. And th th that is something I really like about Android is that, that you get... Because I, I jumped in on the iPhone with the uh, 4S, and, you know, all the way up, I think around about the seven, I, I just, it's the same thing. And it's kind of what I'm saying now. It's not a revolution, you know, it is that evolution as it goes on. There's not a huge amount of difference between, if you looked visually at the iPhone 15 compared to the iPhone 14 or even for the 13, would you really notice a difference if you didn't turn it on or yeah. know it had a different port? Probably not. And th there's nothing wrong with that. A phone is just a phone. But at the same time, I did get a little bit bored and I, 
I went over, <laughs> as Stephen Scott would say, to the dark side for a while. <laughs> but I didn't have an issue with Android whatsoever. Perfectly accessible, absolutely fine. The fact of the matter was that I um I had so much invested already in the Apple ecosystem right, in the terms right. of apps and you know people I was talking to and the way I was talking to them with iMessage that I did go back I did miss the convenience of it but other than that yeah there's absolutely nothing wrong with Android yeah. either once you're in the Apple orchard drinking that cider and eating those pies it's hard to it's hard <laughs> to move on so Sean you mentioned the word accessibility there and there are some accessibility features you want to point out you actually made a little video of uh, for, for us showing you using detection mode on the iPhone just briefly how do you want to set this up what what's the need to know before I throw to this tape well, yeah, the reason I was talking about this is because what's the difference between the, let's say, vanilla and the Pro range? So whether it be 14 and 14 Pro or 15 and 15 Pro, why would you pay that extra money and go for a Pro iPhone? Well, one of the reasons I really like about this, and it's the first time I've experienced it, is the LiDAR sensor, which you only get on the Pro phones. And it adds the ability to 3D map your environment and because of that, there's an extra feature you, you get on the Pro phones called detection mode. And it can do a few different things like detect people when they're in front of you. Uh, it can read text. It can read the, um, if you're pointing at buttons on an appliance like a microwave, it can announce what those buttons are. But the one I'm finding really useful is door detection. And I recorded a little video of me using it. Great, so I'm gonna do a little bit of front-end audio description on this. The video is from the perspective of your phone's camera as you're walking towards a door. Door detection on. Two doors detected. Door, turn handle or knob, swing. Door nine feet away, turn handle or knob, swing. Door eight feet away, turn handle or knob, swing. Door seven feet away, turn handle or knob, swing. Door six feet away, turn handle or knob, swing. Door four feet away, turn handle or knob, swing. Door two feet away, turn handle or knob. Door one feet away, turn handle or knob, swing. Door one feet away. Door one feet away, turn handle or knob. Three doors detected. Door one feet away, turn handle or knob, swing. Open door. Well, number one, what a great use of that camera, and thank you for capturing that footage. Number two, thank you for a little sneak peek inside the house of Sean Priest. There you go. Not just the shed. I forgot it actually took video of the house. <laughs> oh, wow, I would have tied it up. But, um, no, you can see how like, I don't walk that slow either, just walking nine feet, but I was just trying to show... It was sounded a little bit verbose there, a door handle or door knob, um, but... It is just so useful. I actually used it out in the wild, if you will, when I was going somewhere. And it will tell you if it's an automatic door, for example, or that was just the doors, interior doors of my house, so swing door. It tells you if the door is open or closed. And more than that, when I was out and about, it would read any information that was on that door. Um, you know, the door number, uh, it was the telephone number of the business I was going to. It's really handy. It's it's kind of, it's almost a solution to that last 10 yards problem that we have. GPS can get you to the building, but how do you find that door? This, the amount of times I'm banging around on a, mm -hmm. a window like a drunken wasp trying to find the door, <laughs> this really helps. And the key thing with that was, um, because we've had object recognition before, 
the distance and that is purely down to the lidar so you know when you're in front of the door nine feet away eight feet away one feet away and that is really helpful when you're out and about it is very good and as i said there's also people detection which works in exactly the same way it will tell you how far a person is away from you how many people it detects i like that so, yeah i mean look I, i'm not saying it's a a, a must-have feature but it is a reason if you want to know the difference between the pro and the standard iphones i will say that LiDAR can make a huge difference for mobility. It, mm -hmm. it is quite nice. You know, Sean, you mentioned that last 10 feet side of this, right? The, the GPS getting you close, but not all the way there. From my perspective as a legally blind person, they're also no longer making doors particularly distinct. Sometimes you walk up to a business and it's not clear where that door is. <laughs> you are absolutely right. It is an issue. I'm, I'm laughing about it, but there's been a lot of times where I've had to ring a business I'm thinking about I went to the dentist just the other week and I had to ring them and say, look, I'm outside, but I cannot find the way in. Can, and can you come out and get me? Yeah. And there's absolutely, you know, it, with a feature like this, this would have helped so much. So, yeah, I definitely think it's something that people should know about, should know that it's actually available. One of the other features that has got a little bit of buzz, maybe on the accessibility side, maybe on the usability side, maybe somewhere in between, is the action button. How have you been using the action button? Ah, yes. So this is very interesting. Again, this is a pro-only feature. Um, so where the mute switch used to be, just above the volume buttons, on the pros is now just a third button called the action button. And you can assign different things, different features to this. Um, if you go to the settings, you will see the action button option. And in there, currently, I think there's about five or six different options. The default one is to act like your old ring switch. So hold it down for a couple of seconds and it will turn your ringer on or off. Um, but you can also set it to be things like um, a voice memo recorder. So when I hold that button down, I can record a quick message. Then I hold that button down again to stop. And I've got, it's like a dictaphone then. There's also, you can set it to be, uh, open up the camera app and go straight to a particular mode. So if I want to take a video, for example, I don't have to try and navigate around the screen and choose that mode. I can set the action button to do that or a photo or whatever I want. Oh, I like that. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's like a shortcut, right? It's like you're essentially establishing a shortcut for one button that you find yourself using very frequently. Exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. You can set it to be the torch, you know, button. But the real power to it comes when you can assign a Apple shortcut to it. So currently, uh, how I had mine, I should say, actually, I just turned it off. But I could have it that I was talking to ChatGPT. So on the right-hand side with the normal side button would activate Siri. And on the left-hand side with the action button, I had it that it would open ChatGPT and I could have a conversation with it in voice mode. So I could rather than ask Siri, which isn't great when it comes to answering questions, let's be honest, talking to ChatGPT was a totally different experience. Mm. Asking it, you know, recipes and things like that and information, absolutely amazing. And with the power of being able to assign a shortcut to the action button, basically you could make your iPhone do anything. Interesting. Absolutely anything. Interesting. Yes, very very nice feature now it's not to say it's essential because you can do the same thing you can assign a gesture to activate an apple shortcut as well so you could if you go into settings voiceover settings and commands you could actually set a four finger swipe up to 
activate a shortcut. So you could do the same sort mm -hmm. of thing. But it's like you said, there is something just nice about having a dedicated button there. And for certain uh, people, it may be a, 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 just a really nice feature to have just that dedicated button they know exactly what it does maybe just calls one specific contact or but whatever it may be it is another it's just another one of those reasons where you may think well maybe the pro could be an option for them mm. sean one last question here you mentioned the material the titanium and apple has been absolutely hammering that in their commercials titanium this <laughs> titanium that as if they invented titanium what yes. has that actually felt like in terms of like the soundness in your hand does it feel better than some of the plastics or glasses that you might find a typically on a phone do you know what? Maybe, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm not cultured enough. I, I don't know. It feels like metal to me, you know? Now, Stephen Scott, who also has an iPhone 15 Pro, did make the interesting point that he has a, a essential tremor and he does have some issues when it comes down to just holding a phone. And he said he did notice that it was a lot lighter than his previous you know, okay. 14 Pro. Okay, that counts so as something for sure. Absolutely. I mean, this is a big phone. The Pro Max is a big phone, 6.7 inch screen. It's a big phone to hold. And if it was a different material, maybe that, that weight would be an issue. But uh, look, to be honest, for me, from a sort of design, would I care if this was aluminium, stainless steel or even plastic? Probably not. Um, for me, it doesn't really mean much. But hey, it's all about, I suppose, visually. It could look cool. I have no idea. Uh, Sean, I love it when we have our little regional dialects that clash there. Say aluminum one more time for me. Uh, sorry, aluminium? Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love I it. No, it's aluminum. okay. It's it, no, I know. No, I'll say it the way you say it, and we'll say it the way we say it. <laughs> Just like in certain parts of Canada, you don't call a bagel a bagel, you call it a bag, a bagel, a bagel. Oh, that's just wrong, that's just surely. Wrong. I mean, <laughs> you know, you don't call it vague, you call it vague. <laughs> you know, it's, it's stuff, top tier stuff. Uh, Sean, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. You too. That is Sean Priest. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show, show daily, noon Eastern time on AMI Audio. After the break, the issue of Best Buy in the United States discontinuing the sale of DVDs and Blu-rays also caught Alex Smythe's attention, so he'll bring that topic to the round table chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Alex Smythe, earlier in the show, Michelle McQuig and I felt very old when learning about what Best Buy in the U.S. is doing with DVDs and Blu-rays. And I feel like this story uh, hurt you a little bit in the feels, too. Oh, absolutely, Dave. I'm feeling old as well. So uh, for those who don't know, Best Buy US has announced that they will no longer sell physical DVDs and Blu-rays in their stores. Will Gantz has more. 
Best Buy announcing it will stop selling DVDs and Blu-ray discs completely after this holiday shopping season, both in stores and online, leaving physical media collectors feeling a little ejected. I think that's probably one of the main reasons I go to Best Buy, if I'm being honest. The consumer electronics retailer saying in a statement, quote, to state the obvious, the way we watch movies and TV shows is much different today than it was decades ago. Needless to say, this move felt inevitable at some point, but yeah, Dave, you and I were both feeling slightly hurt. I still have a huge love of physical media and DVDs and movies and film and Blu-ray, all that stuff, but I wanted to find out from Ramia Muthan. Ramia, do you still buy physical DVDs and Blu-rays, or are you completely digital now? completely digital and you know I, I didn't have much of that opportunity to buy dvds and blu-rays uh even since i had moved out so you know 12 years ago when i moved out i was still not buying dvds like i had already transferred to everything digital like all digital everything whether it be streaming platforms or downloading or renting digital like it was just very much always part of my life since i moved out um i'd never went through this transition period of still buying physical things for movies and tv shows my parents i say yeah around that same time like 12 ish years ago maybe 10 years ago i think my dad was still watching dvds like just going through what he already had but none the less like we weren't buying any physical DVDs. Romeo, can I broaden the horizon on this a little bit? Because mm -hmm. you've talked about how movies aren't really your thing in the past. Yeah. What about music, CDs, records, anything like that? Or are you digital there too? All digital everything. All digital. Yeah, can't remember before Spotify days. Like the last CD I had was way long before that, in high school. So look at this, Alex, 21st century digital girl over here. But I feel, but you're, but you and me, we're, we're still, we're still buying DVDs. I literally watched Letterkenny this weekend off a Blu-ray box set because I didn't want to bother resubscribing oh, wow. to Crave. Well, there you go. I, I didn't, <laughs> and, and, but there's also the move too that a lot of uh, like different shows and, and movies are just stopped releasing uh, physical copies now. And that's a new trend. So I'm actually a bit surprised Letterkenny had a, a physical uh, a box set that you could purchase, Dave, but I'm the exact same way. Like I, I don't shy away from doing the streaming, but I literally have hundreds, if not maybe close to a thousand physical DVDs, Blu-rays of movies and TV shows that are just all on my shelves. I love them because there's so many times where it's like, oh no, the internet's down or, oh, there's something wrong with the streaming service. You know what? I can actually pop in the physical disc. And mm -hmm. there's some points where the quality is still better than the digital version, depending on the, the hardware and the technology that you have. You also sometimes get access to different director's cuts that have been stricken mm -hmm. from the uh, history of the world because maybe they haven't aged particularly properly. I'm thinking about a couple uh, Adam McKay uh, movies over the years where the uh, uncut version is no longer available to be found unless you have that physical copy. Uh, Alex, do you feel like perhaps we've reached this point of no return with physical media or is this literally going to be kind of a collector's game now, kind of like where we're at with vinyls, CDs, uh, et cetera. Well, it's interesting. I was actually having a conversation this weekend about VHSs and how some people are collecting VHSs, which in my mind make no sense because at least with DVDs and Blu-rays, you have an inferior quality of physical media. And that's the same thing with vinyl. You're, yes, the, the CD quality from the vinyl, you know, there was a downgrade. So it made sense to go back to those retro, the vinyl, like you see the resurgence because of the quality of the actual sound can increase. 
I don't with the digital side. Yeah, maybe like I it really it's going to have to be something whether it's just a lot of uh, different content starts disappearing from the streaming platforms that people get desperate and they really want to find it. I think there may be a bit of a resurgence, but it's not going to be anywhere close to what vinyl is today. Ramya, it sounds like you hit the point of no return about a decade ago. Is it just going to be old guys like me and Alex now? Just a bunch of old men meandering around trying to pop our DVDs into players that no longer support them? Yeah, I mean, maybe, but the thing is, you've brought up a couple points, even just in this conversation that I hadn't even considered. I used to just uh, chalk it off as nostalgia. People just don't want to change. But, you know, you're talking about even in comparison to streaming services that uh, when there's something that you own in DVD or on Blu-ray that you don't have to necessarily resubscribe to Crave again, because that's really the the other evil, right? Like we're subscribing to everything and anything just to watch <laughs> one or two shows sometimes. Um which kind of sucks. But the the other thing is now you could just rent out digitally as well. So yeah, it's just a matter of time before all this stuff is oh, completely gone. Ramya might have said the magic word there, Alex, because it does happen in this world of streaming media where stuff rotates through and across services, different rights are purchased. And every now and then, you can't find what you're looking for at all because it ends up in some kind of purgatory, some kind of streaming purgatory. <laughs> yeah. What do you do? when you can't find that classic film or show that you're looking for on the streaming platform itself? If, I, if I'm really in the mood for something, I'm, I'm gonna try to find online where I can actually purchase a physical copy because if I'm, if I'm craving and, and desiring to watch the movie or the show now, chances are if it's something I've seen before especially, I'm gonna wanna watch it down the road again at some point because that's just my, my viewing habits. So I typically will go on different retailers, see if I can find a physical copy somewhere and, and purchase it. I've, I've done it because I used to do it every single year right around Christmas time because I have my favorite National Lampoon's Christmas. I always wanted to watch it. Sometimes I struggle to find it online yeah. because they would move it around because of the rights. So I a few years ago, I bought it on Blu-ray, you know, high quality um, uh, versions. So I can now pop it in every single year without worry. And, and that's what I, I'm really investing in, yeah, my that, peace of mind. Yeah, that used to happen to me quite frequently as well, and I ended up buying a copy of Pain and Gain, the Mark Wahlberg mm. movie, because uh, I couldn't find it on streaming. And I went to the major river retailer and bought the DVD for like $7 or something. Bada bing, bada boom, it's mine forever. If I ever want to watch those bodybuilders uh, be a bunch of meatheads, <laughs> I can do that. The other option that I've started moving towards uh, when I cannot find something, typically you can still uh, buy the film digitally. Right, You might not get the physical copy, but you can buy the digital copy of the film. Don't ask me why. I don't want to get into details, but I wanted to watch Adam Sandler's The Waterboy uh, a couple of months oh, ago. And great I movie. ended up, I could not find it on a streaming service, and I ended up buying it for $4.99 uh, on the Microsoft Digital Store. And like, that was fine. That was fine by me. And uh, now I can uh, never watch The Waterboy again because I realized as I was <laughs> watching it how much I disliked that movie. Uh, Alex, thank you for this. I'm sorry that you and I perpetually uh, continue to get old. What never gets old is another edition of Kelly and Rumya when that hits the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. Rumya, what's coming up on the show today? You're just sentimental guys, that's all, okay? Uh, it's nostalgia. Not a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, we are talking about um, 
uh, or with, sorry, Amy Amanti to talk about Podcast Roundup, all the new podcasts, all the new seasons, and latest uh, episodes of podcasts that are AMI originals. We're looking forward to talking to Amy. I haven't talked to her in a bit. And we have Independent Living with Leanne Barda, where she's discussing and giving us tips and tricks and all kinds of things for upcoming Halloween, including how to just make it more inclusive as uh, activities uh, approach, right, in late October. Also, in on Know Your Rights, we're talking about democracy with Danielle McLaughlin and specifically about educating ourselves to be better with disagreement and conflict. Are we doing that well in North America? I'd say hard no, but mm. we're going to talk more about it. Uh, simple, always easy topics with Danielle McLaughlin on a Monday. <laughs> Ramya, thank you for this. Thanks, Dave. That's Ramya and within the co-host of Kelly and Ramya coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Coming up after the break, how can you stay active outdoors with the fall weather while dressed appropriately? How can you get sweaty but not too sweaty and not get cold? What's the balance? Ryan Van Praet has some recommendations. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The temperature is dropping across the country. You know that. You feel it by just poking your head out the window. But what if you want to do more than just poke your head out the window? What if you want to stay active outdoors? How can you dress for the weather without sacrificing performance or being just deeply, deeply uncomfortable? Inclusive sport advocate Ryan Van Praet has some tips. Hey, good morning, Ryan. Good morning. How are you? Ryan, I'm great. As someone who used to engage in some running, I know this time of year can get a little bit complicated. What are the common mistakes somebody makes when they're dressing for a fall outdoor activity? I would say uh, overdressing, probably. And I think part of that ties into the number one mistake is not paying close enough attention to the weather, particularly the wind. Um, the sun is strong. The wind is cold. The shoulder season, spring and fall, at a really tricky dynamic when uh, when dressing. So, um, overdressing tends to be the number one fault, I would think. One of my more seasoned runner friends once told me, you should never dress for how you're going to feel the first five minutes. You should dress for how you're going to feel about 15 minutes into the run. Totally. So running, I always say show up to the run a little cold. If you're riding your bike outside, different, right? Because it's windy and that wind's going to cool you down even more. But for a run or a walk or general uh, outdoor activity, I would say, yeah, show up a little cold because you're going you're gonna to heat up. Ryan, an observation I had yesterday as I was doing some dog sitting and walking the doggo down the trail, um, leafs this time of year can be a little bit tricky. They get a little slippy out there. So what are the considerations around the right footwear in the fall? Yeah, well, I'm always about buying more gear. So uh, <laughs> investing in, in maybe uh, trail shoes um, if, if you're out in more trail activities and we tend to hit the trails more just in general in the fall for that for that leaf uh, watching so being mindful of the, sh the shoes you have the amount of rubber on the bottom and honestly um regardless of the shoes you have being mindful of the socks that you wear because a lot of the oh. shoes let 
a lot of the shoes let water in. They're, they're designed to be breathable, right? They're designed to keep your feet cool, but in the winter and the fall, um, that often means moisture and, and too cold. So a good pair of socks, I would say, is your number one uh, investment for fall weather. Ryan, when you talk about the rubber on the shoes, that's obviously going to be pretty individualistic. Mm -hmm. But if somebody's been using a pair all summer long, is there that temptation to maybe go invest in a pair just for the fall? I don't see anything wrong with it because, you know, shoes generally wear out due to mileage and due to moisture. So if you have a pair of shoes that you only use in the fall or the winter and then the rest of the season they stay safe and dry, they could last you a couple seasons. And so there's not necessarily anything wrong with that uh having having a, a fall or winter pair of shoes in your rotation just for for safety and a lot of them now are gore-tex so they don't allow that moisture as well mm. so there's a method to that madness is is there a way at all to not break the bank on shoes i know for someone like you who does like actual like triathlons and ironmans you know there's probably no way around it but for a layman like me who might do three or four k on a good run if my ankles and knees ever allow that ever again like is there is there like a middle ground in terms of what i might spend on a pair of shoes rather than simply going and dropping 250 or 300 bucks I don't even pay that much. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think for around 100 bucks at SportCheck, you're probably going to do okay. I would say start with something neutral. Don't let the salesperson say, well, you have flat feet. You need a super supportive shoe. That's uh, There's so much more to that we could discuss another day. Start with something, just a, a plain pair of neutral. Neutral is the key, running shoes. And that basically will get you started. And then from there, you can always uh, go to something more supportive. But honestly, the shoes nowadays are so amazing, a hundred bucks would get you a good pair of activity shoes that would last you a really nice, long time. Nice, nice. Alex Smythe and I were bickering about this earlier this morning because this topic ended up presenting the Daily Poll, which folks can vote on at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And it was about the kinds of materials that may be utilized or purchased in a fitness environment. And the argument that I was making is, who cares if you're wearing a cotton shirt and dirty basketball shorts, if you're just spending 20 or 30 minutes on the elliptical in a home gym, but how important is material when you consider the outdoor exercise experience? Well, number one, I would say cotton is bad. Um, okay. Just from a, just from a, a heat retention, a moisture retention, a chafing point of view, okay. that's pretty much, that's my number one rule is don't wear cotton. Uh, I think, things nowadays are less complicated. You go to sport check, pretty much all of the apparel there is going to be performance or moisture wicking. So if you go to a place like sport check or MEC, you're going to probably walk away with something that is going to be safe. Uh, cotton, anything? No, <laughs> maybe a cotton headband, maybe because okay. it sucks up the moisture, but that's about it. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit with the with the cotton side of the equation, but 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 more broadly speaking, like yeah. how important are fabrics for that outdoor experience? <laughs> totally. So so layers are important. So having something close to your skin that is moisture wicking is going to basically take that moisture off your skin and allow your skin to breathe, right? And then then having maybe a windbreaker layer or a vest, something that you can remove easily if needed. But don't wear what I'm wearing right now, a giant sweater over a cotton t-shirt this would be a recipe for disaster so 
uh, something quote unquote moisture wicking against your skin, <laughs> it, you're off to a good start. I'm feeling very seen here because when I used to run in the fall, <laughs> it was absolutely a big frumpy hoodie with uh, the dirtiest basketball shorts I could find. That That's weren't gonna... probably why you don't like running. <laughs> but, you're yeah. just like the experience. Yeah, there... In high top running shoes, <laughs> you're just you're not, you're not my, helping yourself. In my out. loafers, running in my in my yeah. slip on loafers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> with dress socks, you're just not helping yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ryan, speaking of uh, moisture, hydration. Again, thinking about this outdoor activity that's maybe going to last for more than, say, 15, 20, 25 minutes, you're going to want to bring some hydration with you. But if it's starting to get really chilly, like right around that zero mark, what are some recommendations for bringing your hydration with you that isn't going to be an ice cube by the time uh, you need it? Yeah, two quick things. So if you wear a fanny pack with a, with a water belt, uh, keeping it out of the wind. So if it might have to be on the front if the wind is at your back uh, or vice versa. Or uh, hydro pack. So the sort of collapsible water bottles, they are a bit sloshy to carry, but you can tuck them in your waistband. You can tuck them in close to your chest. Um, ladies tuck them into their sports bras uh, as well. So it, it, it's, it, it, anything close to your body is going to keep it out of the wind and keep it, um, yeah, keep it from freezing. Ryan, only got about uh, 45 seconds to a minute left here on the clock. Again, you are someone who is an avid sports person. You do all kinds of stuff in the summer. You do all kinds of stuff in the winter. You like to train. Where do you rank running in the fall or doing outdoor, outdoor exercise in the fall with the biking compared to, say, some of that harder summer training? I love it. Uh, this, is the, this is the runner's weather. I mean, that's why all the marathons happen in the spring and the fall. 10 degrees, uh, cool sunny day beautiful this is uh, this is prime fall weather but yeah just be careful leaves are slippery when it's wet mm -hmm. the sun is lower so that proposes different uh, concerns for for seeing um but it is ideal running weather for sure not so much ideal outdoor cycling weather yeah it, it closes the window a little bit earlier if you don't like running in the dark you just know that sun's gonna get down there a little bit mm -hmm. earlier uh but it but you're right the temperature side of it oh my gosh it's actually it's actually pleasant and amazing hey ryan this was great talking about the outdoor activities next time you and i get together we'll transition to the indoors We'll invest in some uh, better clothing for you, Dave. Okay. <laughs> I am not letting you into my closet. There is, uh, <laughs> there's, you'll be very disappointed with me across the board. <laughs> that is Ryan Van Preet. He is an inclusive sport advocate talking all about how to dress for activity in the fall. I mentioned on the way out of here on Friday that I had the opportunity over the weekend to do a, a couple cool opportunities relating to the disability community with about 40 seconds left here in the show. I just want to give a shout out to find in Blindness Canada and their Young Leaders Summit who asked me to come present on Saturday to a few of their uh, folks in attendance, about 60 to 70 people in the room, uh, young leaders coming together from all across the country. Really cool opportunity. I was beyond grateful to uh, give young people life advice, although a lot of my friends were thinking, why on earth would anybody want life advice from you? And my friends love me and care for me deeply. And then yesterday I had a chance to emcee an event for the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, the right tool for the job. A lot of cool information shared in that that one, including the number of people with disabilities who do not have an RDSP. So that might be a topic for down the road on the show. The show comes back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment.
AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.